You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health news, bringing you everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness, all the while trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, as well as trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues, bringing you that without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. And welcome to this podcast, which was pre-recorded for initial airing on Wednesday evening, February the 8th, 2017. As we move further along to the second month of this year, uh, this first item on tonight's show brings to mind that some of you may still be working on your New Year's resolutions, and some of you may have already quickly abandoned it. Uh, Hopefully, that's not the case. But if you did, perhaps you tried to change too much too quickly. Uh, Research shows that if you try to change behavior incrementally, that is a little bit at a time, rather than making big, huge, sweeping lifestyle changes, it's easier and less overwhelming and uh, smaller successes build upon each other and lead to larger ones. Uh, But regardless, the first item on tonight's podcast, to lose weight, a common New Year's resolution, and to keep it off, be prepared to navigate interpersonal challenges. And what we're going to be talking about in this article is you've heard of body shaming, that is, uh, normally thought of as, and it is, it is actually uh, people decrying the larger proportions of some, uh, which of course is very abusive and uh, people can deeply hurt others' feelings by doing this. But did you know you could also be body shamed for losing weight? Well, that's what this study is about. It's from North Carolina State University, and the research highlights an unexpected challenge for those who have made a New Year's resolution to lose weight. The people around you may consciously or subconsciously sabotage your efforts, or I would amend that slightly to say try to sabotage your efforts. It's up to the person who is losing or trying to lose weight not to let that happen, as we'll hear. The study also uncovered strategies that people use to navigate interpersonal challenges related to losing weight and keeping it off. Many times, when someone loses weight, that person's efforts are undermined by friends, 
or even family or co-workers. The study found that people experience what's called a lean stigma after losing weight, such as receiving snide remarks about healthy eating habits or having people tell them that they're going to gain all of the weight back. It's remarkable to hear this being documented. I've certainly heard this and heard that people experience it, but it's the exact opposite of the stigma people who are overweight or obese experience. Uh, the, the stigma that those people experience is well documented. They're not only shunned socially, they have less job opportunities. But to hear that people will actually denigrate others' efforts to lose weight, uh, that may be a surprise. The researchers conducted 40 in-depth interviews with people who reported themselves as having been formerly overweight or obese, but consider themselves thin at the time of the interview. 21 of the study participants were women, 19 were men, a fairly even split, and the participants reported an average weight loss of 76.9 pounds. Wow, an average weight loss of 80 pounds. So this is a group of people who over, underwent a remarkable transformation. All 40 of them have uh, reported having people in their lives try to belittle or undermine their weight loss efforts. Why would people do that? I have my own ideas. We'll get to that later. This negative behavior is caused by, again, what they call lean stigma. However, the study participants used specific communication strategies to cope with this lean stigma and maintain both their weight loss and their personal relationships. Well, obviously, these 40 people were successful and overcame this lean stigma and did not allow the negative belittling and undermining remarks of others to deter their efforts. Um, so it's important to know what they did to accomplish that, and this may help others in their efforts to try to lose weight. The communication strategies they used fell into two different categories. The first category focused on study participants helping other people save face or not feel uncomfortable about the study participants' weight loss and healthy eating habits. Think about that for a minute. That's interesting, isn't it? The person who has lost all this weight has to help the, those around them save face? Well, I guess it's a question of uh, maybe the people around the newly thin person are without the thin person saying anything about it, sort of shaming them. You know, and maybe the people around them are themselves overweight or obese. And here's this newly thin friend or relative or co-worker, and uh, they're embarrassed, perhaps, for their own sake. Well, look, look at what so-and-so accomplished with their weight loss. Why couldn't I or why shouldn't I do that? 
But for the person who lost the weight to have to feel self-conscious about how their transformation makes others feel bad about themselves and go out of their way to help them save face, uh, that's really remarkable. The second category of communication strategy focused on damage control. In other words, the people who lost all the weight were finding ways to mitigate the discomfort people felt about an individual's weight loss and related lifestyle changes. Again, trying to help those around them not feel so bad about themselves because they're looking at this newly thin person and maybe uncomfortable about themselves and their own weight, their own body image. Remarkable. Now, the specific techniques used to avoid discomfort included telling other people about one's intentions and rationale before losing weight. Okay, be proactive about it. That's a good idea, good strategy for anyone who intends to want to lose weight. If you mention it to those around you, it's going to give you more incentive to stick with your strategy. Uh, it's like you're building in accountability. Study participants also reported taking steps to conceal the scope of their lifestyle changes, such as eating smaller portions of unhealthy foods at family gatherings, accepting food from people but not eating it. That is, for example, taking a piece of cake at an office birthday party but saying they'll eat it later or saving their cheat day saving it for their cheat day, uh, for a night out with friends. Again, remarkable in that that strategy is going out of your way to spare the feelings of others who might be, become self-conscious by looking at the person with their healthy eating habits and somehow or another take offense at that. Uh, I, I just think this is rather remarkable. Now, techniques used to mitigate discomfort in others tended to focus on making excuses for changes in behavior. Uh, again, continuing on the same thing, theme, almost apologizing to others around them for their effort and intention and methods to lose weight. Why should they have to? But they found, the researchers found that study participants would go out of their way to make clear they were not judging other people's choices. Now, that's fair and that's appropriate. Um, just because someone has made a lot of changes, try to lose weight, uh, it would not be proper or appropriate or socially acceptable for them to throw that in other people's faces. For example, participants would stress that they had changed their eating habits for health reasons or in order to have more energy, but not, for example, apparently, to better fit into their clothes. Overall, the study highlights how important relationships are to making sustainable life changes and the importance of communication in how we navigate those relationships. The paper is called An Examination of How People Who Have Lost Weight communicatively negotiate interpersonal challenges 
to weight management. And it is in press at the time I'm recording this podcast in the journal Health Communication. Well, it is remarkable that people who undergo such a transformation feel like they have to soft pedal their approach so as not to offend others who probably need to lose weight but choose not to put the same effort into it they do. Um, you know, in fact, might there be a diplomatic, polite, less offensive way for the person to say, yes, I have lost a lot of weight and I feel great and, you know, the changes I've made have not been difficult, you know, something anyone could do, including you. All right, well, we're going to take our first commercial break. We'll continue the discussion of this when we get back in other mental health-related news. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. And we just reviewed an article showing that people who lose a lot of weight uh, remarkably deal with a lot of stigma about that. And either consciously or subconsciously, go out of their way to avoid offending the sensibilities of those around them who may not be supportive or congratulatory about their weight loss. Um, First of all, my opinion about this is that people who are overweight and obese have to put up with enough stigma and abuse and bullying when they are obese, if they are able to successfully lose weight, um, you know, in my opinion, they don't have to apologize to anyone or go out of their way to avoid offending someone else's sensibilities. Um, If you're unhappy or offended or in any way, shape, or form put out by the healthy transformation of someone around you, then in my opinion, you need to look in the mirror and look at yourself 
and find out what is wrong with you that you can't say, wow, you look great. Uh, whatever you did, it's uh, going well and you look terrific. Good for you. Um, if you can't find it within yourself to say that, then fine. Just don't say anything. But to make remarks uh, that are somehow insulting or cutting or undermining or sabotaging to the person losing weight, um, that is just as abusive as so-called fat shaming, in my opinion. Now, I'll give you another example of the same type of thing that may come up. Um, and this is uh, an example that comes to mind from my own uh, private practice. Uh, recently, a patient disclosed to me that they were uh, cutting back on drinking, that that was their New Year's resolution, that they were aware themselves and with the help of loved ones and uh, their spouse that they had been overdoing it with alcohol, had been going on for quite some time, and it was something they needed to address. Uh, so the person at first decided just to cut back, but then they realized that they felt much better when they didn't drink, so they stopped altogether. And mind you, this is without any treatment, no counseling, no alcohol, it's anonymous, nothing like that. They just did it on their own. But what they found was that in certain social gatherings, they would be subjected to this, I guess you would call it sober stigma, as a parallel to the lean stigma found by the subjects in the uh, NC State study who had lost a lot of weight. Uh, and what I mean is this person would come across those, oh, you're not drinking, and they would be subjected to snide cutting comments or uh, sarcastic comments such as that. And again, my, my attitude about this is that, well, you know, it's very disappointing, and the person making those comments needs to look themselves in the mirror and say, well, why are you making those comments to someone who chooses not to drink? Uh, my guess is that person probably has a problem with alcohol themselves and can't or won't admit it to themselves. Otherwise, why would they be so put out and make such snide, sarcastic comments at someone else choosing not to drink? Um, now, we're talking adults, by the way. These are not young people who are in college, not a fraternity or sorority or anything like that, uh, well into adult age. So it wasn't about that. Uh, in any case, to me, the take-home point from this is that while it would not be appropriate at all for a person who newly becomes lean by losing weight or a person who newly becomes sober uh, by stopping drinking to throw it up in the face of people who are overweight or who drink too much um, or to somehow um, proselytize about it. Um, but it certainly is not right at all for those around that person to uh, subtly sabotage or undercut their efforts uh, by making these uh, 
uh, abusive comments about the lifestyle changes. And I would say rather than to consciously or subconsciously go out of their way to avoid offending the sensibilities of those around them, those who are newly lean or newly sober should merely uh, confidently go on with uh, expressing their satisfaction with the changes they've made and how much better they feel. And that hopefully will send a message to those around them that, hmm, maybe this is something that I should consider for myself. All right, next up on psychiatry today. Increasingly, we all have our faces in our phones all the time. And so naturally, there are a lot of tools that may help people in their life, no matter what you're doing, no matter where you are, no matter what you're thinking about. And trying to address mental health is no different. So um, here is an article I found about new apps designed to reduce depression and anxiety uh, with just the ease of checking your phone. And this comes to us from a new study at Northwestern University. Soon you can seek mental health advice on your smartphone as quickly as finding a good restaurant. A novel suite of 13 speedy mini-apps called IntelliCare resulted in participants reporting significantly less depression and anxiety by using the apps on their smartphones up to four times a day. The apps offer exercises to de-stress, reduce self-criticism and worrying, methods to help your life feel more meaningful, mantras to highlight your strengths, strategies for a good night's sleep, and more. Most apps designed for mental health typically offer a single strategy to feel better or provide too many features that make them difficult to navigate. Users may get bored or overwhelmed and may stop using the apps after a few weeks. But participants robustly used the IntelliCare interactive apps as many as four times daily or an average of 195 times for eight weeks of the study. They spent an average of one minute using each app with longer times for apps with relaxation videos. And the IntelliCare is, called, is um, I-N-T-E-L-L-I, capital C, then A-R-E, all one word. The 96 participants who completed the research study reported that they experienced about a 50% decrease in the severity of depressive and anxiety symptoms. The short-term study-related reductions are comparable to results expected in clinical practice using psychotherapy or even with that seen using antidepressant medication. The study was published on January 5th in the Journal of Medical Internet Research. The apps were designed so as to fit easily into people's lives and could be used as simply as apps to find a restaurant or directions. 
Some of the participants kept using them after the study because they felt that the apps helped them feel better. There were many apps to try during the study, so there was a sense of novelty. Participants had access to the 13 IntelliCare apps from Google Play and received eight weeks of coaching for the use of IntelliCare. Coaching included an initial phone call plus two or more text messages per week over the eight weeks. In the study, 105 participants were enrolled and 96 of them completed the study. That is a much, much higher completion rate than if we were talking about a research study that tested a medication. Uh, now, when I read that there was the coaching involved, my first thought about that was, well, okay, so that I'm sure it had a big role in the positive outcome of the use of these apps that there was the, the subjects received eight weeks of coaching in the use of the apps. And then, you know, the coaching included phone calls and text messages. So how could that help that the people who use the apps get in the study be translated into commercial release of these apps? And, uh, you know, so that's, that was one question that came up in my mind. Uh, let's read on. The preliminary study did not include a control arm. So it's possible that some people who enrolled in the trial would have improved anyway, partly because they may have been motivated to try something new. Uh, the authors have now launched a larger trial recruiting 300 participants with a control arm. What they mean by control arm is you compare a group who use these apps uh, to a group who didn't but had you know, similar characteristics and uh, just did not use these apps and you, to justify the conclusion that there is a difference with the apps. So there's a description of a few of some of these IntelliCare apps, including one called Daily Feet, F-E-A-T-S, designed to motivate you to add worthwhile and rewarding activities into your day to increase your overall satisfaction in life. There's one called Purple Chill. I think that's not an aptly chosen name. Um, it sort of evokes um, some of the mixtures of, um, you know, alcohol, caffeine, and other chemicals that young people used to uh, abuse. But regardless, anyway, the Purple Chill app is designed to help you unwind with audio recordings that guide you through exercises to de-stress and worry less. Uh, in general, I think it's great that more of these types of things are being developed for smartphones, and hopefully it'll increase access to trying uh, better ways to feel better in, in terms of mental health. We'll take a commercial break here and be right back with more. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. 
These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay. You're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. Right now we're talking about a study from Northwestern University pioneering the use of new apps for the smartphone that will help people with their mental health. Uh, Another couple of apps the article mentions, Slumber Time, designed to ease you into a good night's rest. And there are probably a lot of those apps out there. There are many, many mental health-related apps already on the market for meditation, for sleep. Then you have, of course, your uh, Fitbit and other activity trackers that uh, may address sleep issues. And then there's one called My Mantra, designed to help you create motivating mantras to highlight your strengths and values. Using digital tools for mental health is emerging as an important part of our future. These are designed to help the millions of people who want support but can't get to a therapist's office. More than 20% of Americans have significant symptoms of depression or anxiety each year, but only about 20% of people with a mental health problem get adequate treatment. Uh, Therefore, if reliable and helpful and effective apps could be developed, it will definitely be something that could relieve a lot of suffering. The IntelliCare algorithm recommends new apps each week to keep the experience fresh, provide new opportunities for learning skills, and avoid user boredom. Although the apps are not validated, each one was designed by Northwestern clinicians and based on validated techniques used by therapists. IntelliCare is a national research study. Individuals can download the apps free with no financial obligation. But Northwestern researchers hope participants will provide confidential feedback via four weekly questions that will be used to further develop the system. The data will help the system make even better recommendations and provide more personalized treatment. 
people also may enroll in a study in which they will be paid to provide even more feedback. Some also will have access to an IntelliCare coach by text messaging and phone calls who are available to support them in using the apps. There is now evidence that these approaches will likely work. They are designed to teach many of the same skills therapists teach patients. Different apps are expected to work with different people. The goal is to find what's right for you. All right, well, if the IntelliCare suite of mental health-related apps someday makes it big, you can say you heard about it here first. Um, hopefully, if you do try to download it and try it, then it will be helpful for you too. Next up on Psychiatry Today, meditation and music may help reverse early memory loss in adults at risk for Alzheimer's disease. That certainly would be a breakthrough uh, because unfortunately once Alzheimer's disease progresses there's little to nothing that can be done about reversing the decline in memory the treatments that we have now help a very small number of people uh, preserve a small amount of what's left of their memory for a short period of time. And sadly, that's about the best we can do. So let's hear about this. It comes to us from West Virginia University, uh, the recent study of adults with early memory loss found that practice of a simple meditation or music listening program may have multiple benefits for older adults with preclinical memory loss. Okay, so these are people who've had some memory loss, but they're not yet diagnosed with dementia, whether it's Alzheimer's or any other type. In this randomized controlled trial, the gold standard for a trial of any type of treatment for any illness, 60 older adults with subjective cognitive decline, which in plain English means they feel like their memory is getting worse. Uh, this is a condition that may represent a preclinical stage of Alzheimer's disease. So 60 uh, adults with this were assigned to either a beginner meditation or a music listening program and asked to practice 12 minutes a day for 12 weeks. As detailed in a paper recently published by the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, both the meditation and music groups showed marked and significant improvements in subjective memory function and objective cognitive performance at three months. These included domains of cognitive functioning most likely to be affected in preclinical and early stages of dementia. For example, attention, executive function, processing speed, and subjective memory function. The substantial gains observed in memory and cognition were maintained or further increased at six months, that is three months post-intervention. As explained in the research team's previous paper, both intervention groups also showed improvements in sleep, mood, decreased stress, improved well-being and quality of life, 
with gains that were particularly pronounced in the meditation group. Again, all benefits were sustained or further enhanced at three months post-intervention. The findings of this trial suggest that two simple mind-body practices, uh, meditation and music listening, may not only improve mood, sleep, and quality of life, but also boost cognition and help reverse perceived memory loss in older adults with subjective cognitive decline. Well, um, I think that if they could expand this trial um, and still document this, these benefits, that would be a tremendous result. I mean, 60 is a very, very small number of subjects. So hopefully this can be replicated over many more different study centers with much larger sizes of subjects uh, because we really need interventions that will prevent Alzheimer's since, uh, unfortunately, as yet, we're powerless to do anything to treat it. All right, continuing with the theme of music and the brain, found another article, and it is about music in the brain. It says it's the first imaging genetic study linking dopamine genes to music. Sounds, such as music and noise, are capable of reliably affecting individuals' moods and emotions, possibly by regulating brain dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter strongly involved in emotional behavior and mood regulation. Dopamine is our pleasure reward chemical. It is our libido chemical. It is the chemical that is secreted by our pleasure reward center of the brain. Now, the relationship of sound environments with mood and emotions is highly variable across individuals. A putative source of variability is genetic background. In this regard, a new imaging genetics study conducted in two Italian hospitals in collaboration with the University of Helsinki in Finland, has provided the first evidence that the effects of music and noise on mood-related behavior and brain physiology are associated with genetically determined dopamine function. In particular, this study, published in the journal Neuroscience, revealed that a functional variation in the dopamine gene called D2, uh, the gene for the D2 receptor, or DRD2, modulates the impact of music as opposed to noise on mood states and emotion-related activity in the prefrontal areas, showing a different susceptibility for the mood-modulating effects of music and noise uh, with respect to two distinct genotypes. In more details, the results showed mood improvement after music exposure in subjects with one particular gene subset and mood deterioration 
after noise exposure in patients with the other genetic variation. Moreover, the music, as opposed to a noise environment, decreased activity in certain areas of the brains of one set of subjects, as well as the prefrontal area of the brain was uh, affected by music in other subjects while processing emotional faces. These results are novel in identifying a biological source of variability in the impact of sound environments on emotional responses. Their approach allowed the observation of the link between specific genes and their outward expression via a true biological path that goes from genetic variations to brain physiology that governs behavior. The use of this approach is especially important when the investigated behavior is complex and very variable across subjects. Many biological factors are involved. And the study represents the first use of imaging genetics in terms of the field of music and sounds in general. The results suggest that even a non-pharmacological intervention such music might regulate mood and emotional responses at both the behavioral and the level of the brain cell. More importantly, these findings encourage the search for personalized music-based neurotransmission and also abnormal mood and emotion-related brain activity as it relates to the activity of dopamine. Well, we're going to take another commercial break here. We'll wrap up our thoughts about that and then have an interesting article for those of you who suffer from misophonia. That and more when we come back after this break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. All right, well, just before the break, 
we summarized a study showing that scientists have demonstrated that different genetic variations in the dopamine pathways in the brain can be responsible for res responses to musical sounds as well as responses to noises. In other words, finding the noisy sounds to be detrimental to mood as opposed to finding the <clears throat> mood-enhancing benefits of listening to music. That leads me conveniently into another article that I wanted to discuss with you. And those of you who suffer from misophonia or have heard of it and want to know more about it, uh, definitely want to hear about this. The article is called Wired for Sound, Enraging Noises, not just annoying, enraging noises caused by brain connection overdrive. <clears throat> so let's see to what extent this builds on the research of the other study or coincides with it. While many of us may find the sounds of chewing or breathing off-putting, for some they're unbearable. And new research has shown their brains are going into overdrive. The researchers from Newcastle University report new findings of the physical basis for people suffering from a condition called misophonia, a disorder where they have a hatred of sounds such as eating, chewing, repeated pen clicking, and other similar repeating uh, sounds that can be annoying. These are called trigger sounds by the misophonia community, and the response can be an immediate and intense fight-or-flight feeling. Again, this goes beyond just normal annoyance to be where it's unbearable and intolerable. Uh, the study was published in the journal Current Biology. Researchers report the first evidence of clear changes in the structure of the brain's frontal lobe in sufferers of misophonia and also report changes in the brain activity. That's really right there the main take-home point of this study, that misophonia should no longer be looked at as some sort of personality trait or quirk, that that's just how someone is, that these noises bother or annoy them. But instead, there is now a brain variation in terms of people who suffer from misophonia to account for their symptoms. <clears throat> brain imaging revealed that people with the condition have an abnormality in the emotional control mechanism which causes their brains to go into overdrive upon hearing trigger sounds. Researchers also found brain activity originated from a different connectivity pattern to the frontal lobe. This is normally responsible for suppressing the abnormal reaction to sounds. The researchers also found that trigger sounds evoked a heightened physiological response with increased heart rate and sweating in people with misophonia. Hence, again, the fight-or-flight response. But it's quite remarkable to think that 
in misophonics, they found that there is a different connectivity pattern in the frontal lobe. For many people with misophonia, this will come as welcome news as for the first time, there's demonstrated a difference in brain structure and function in sufferers. Patients with misophonia had strikingly similar clinical features, and yet the syndrome is not recognized in any of the current clinical diagnostic schemes. Stay tuned, that may change. This study demonstrates the critical brain changes as further evidence to convince the skeptical medical community that this is a genuine disorder. Using brain scans carried out with magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, researchers revealed a physical difference in the frontal lobe between the cerebral hemispheres of people with misophonia, higher myelination in the gray matter of an area of the brain called ventromedial prefrontal cortex. The study also used functional MRI to measure the brain activity of people with and without misophonia while they were listening to a range of sounds, such as rain, a busy cafe, a kettle boiling, which were deemed neutral sounds, or a baby crying or a person screaming, which were deemed, accurately I think, unpleasant sounds, and then the sounds of breathing or eating, which are very common trigger sounds. This showed abnormal connections between this frontal lobe area and an area in the brain called the anterior insular cortex. This area is in the gray matter of the brain, but buried in a deep fold at the side of the brain, and is known to be involved in processing emotions and integrating signals both from the body and outside world. When presented with trigger sounds, Activity goes up in both areas in misophonic subjects, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex and the anterior insular cortex. Whilst in normal subjects, the activity goes up in the anterior insular cortex, but down in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. The research team think that this reflects an abnormality of a control mechanism between this area of the frontal lobe and the anterior insular cortex. Hopefully, this will reassure sufferers there is now evidence to establish the basis for the disorder through the differences in brain control mechanism in misophonia. This will suggest therapeutic manipulations and encourage a search for similar mechanisms in other conditions associated with abnormal emotional reactions to certain environmental stimuli. This research opens up future possibilities for therapy. The hope is to identify the brain signature of the trigger sounds. Those signatures can be used for treatment, such as for neurofeedback, for example, where people can self-regulate their reactions by looking at what kind of brain activity is being produced. And just to expand upon that a little further, the promise is that if you can somehow capture 
the sound signatures of these trigger sounds, you can use neurofeedback, a brain-based form of biofeedback, to help the mesophonic to modulate their emotional responses to these sounds so they no longer have these uh, unbearable, exaggerated reactions to them. <clears throat> Fascinating work. Hopefully this will lead to breakthroughs in diagnosis and in treatment and shed more light on this uh, up until fairly recently quite obscure disorder. Next up on psychiatry today, another example of showing how problems such as anxiety and depression are very real and they have very real physical consequences. Lung cancer patients who also have anxiety and depression die sooner. Patients who experience anxiety and depression after being diagnosed with advanced lung cancer are more likely to die sooner. This research comes to us from the University of British Columbia. The study was published in January in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management. is among the first to examine the effect of anxiety and depression on survival rates for lung cancer patients. The findings build on similar previous research looking at breast cancer patients, further deepening scientists' understanding of the effect of psychosocial factors on survival rates for patients diagnosed with cancer. The question of whether anxiety and depression affect survival in cancer patients has been of interest to scientists for decades. This study confirms that there is indeed a link for lung cancer patients and that it's important for healthcare providers to treat not only their tumor, but also focus on the full emotional experience of the patient. For the study, researchers followed 684 patients undergoing treatment. The patients were all recently diagnosed with stage three non-small cell lung cancer a common type of lung cancer with a poor survival rate of only 30 to 46 percent after one year. Patients completed a psychological screening questionnaire that asked about anxiety and depression symptoms. After controlling for factors including age, sex, ethnicity, type of tumor, and treatment, researchers found that those who reported feeling anxious and depressed after diagnosis had a shorter length of survival. While the effect was small, the researchers were able to document it because of the large patient sample and controlled method. Although the research shows a link between anxiety and depression and lung cancer survival rates, the findings cannot assess whether high anxiety or depression directly caused these worse outcomes. It is likely that other unmeasured factors that correlate with high anxiety and depression, such as less social support, could play a role. However, the relationship found is significant and certainly worth further exploration into whether interventions to improve anxiety and depression in lung cancer patients can improve survival rates. An important limitation for the study is that no data was available 
on whether the patients continued smoking after diagnosis. It is known that a significant proportion of lung cancer patients continue smoking or are unsuccessful in trying to quit, and this struggle could also have affected their level of anxiety or depression. Researchers now looking into the long-term effect of psychosocial factors on survival rates for patients with prostate cancer. The study, importantly, I think, drives home the point that, you know, it's not just, hey, well, you have cancer, of course you can be anxious or depressed. It should be treated regardless of the cancer diagnosis. Going to have to wrap up tonight's show. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.